This message is provided by Bridgeway Community Church. Thanks for tuning in. Well, howdy, Bridgeway. It is great to see you here today. It's great to be together. I heard there's a little game going on this afternoon. Any Lions fans in the room? Oh, kind of a quiet, okay, all right. I see lots of Honolulu blue. It's such a good day. I can just tell you, uh, I feel like I speak for all of us. We've waited our lifetimes for this. Pinch me. We're one game away from the Super Bowl. I do hope you enjoy the game later today. And as you can tell, I'm just excited, just grateful to be here with you this morning. As Pastor Justin said, we've got a really big task in front of us. We are studying world religions in our series called Crossroads. Uh, it's my hope in this series to uh, educate and inform and to give you some, uh, some different ways in which the world Operates. In fact, it's very clear in my way of looking at things that we are at a crossroads. And if you say God in mixed company, you very likely mean something very different if you're saying that in the presence of someone who claims to be a Jew or a Muslim or a Buddhist or if someone says they believe in the flying spaghetti monster. There's a really good chance that what you believe about God is very, very different. I want to take just a quick moment at the beginning of this message and say this series is different from what we would normally do. If, uh, if you're here this morning and someone invited you for part of the series, glad to have you here this morning. If you just showed up, had no idea what we were talking about, the uh, series is a little different. This uh, is going to look a little bit like uh, kind of comparing world religions for the next several weeks. If you dig that kind of stuff, you're in the right place. And if not, well, everything kind of changes. This won't last forever in our church life here. But let me start like this. Um, as Christians, we have sort of must-haves. In fact, it reminded me of sort of a, kind of a marketing trick. If you put one of these tags on an item, it will sort of elicit in the buyer kind of a response that I got to have it, right? So we have, we have must-have uh, pieces of technology, and you have must-have home upgrades. There's must-have cars. Uh, it turns out, actually, there's must-haves for people, right? I mean, if you're an employer, you have must-haves for your new hire. And if you're an employee, you have must-haves for your job. You want a certain salary and, you know, benefits package and vacation. Um, I've been told that dating is all about must-haves. I wouldn't know. Uh, Men have must-haves for women. Women have must-haves for men. In fact, I can just kind of feel it. Love is in the air this morning. And so if you're sitting next to your spouse, do this for me. You can just turn. You can just kind of look at your spouse for just a moment and just tell them, you are my must-have, right? Like, kind of get the Valentine vibes going here, right? All right, even if you don't do that, only do that if it's your spouse sitting next to you, seriously, right? Um, it kind of works this way with faith and faith systems as well. There are must-haves. Now, we don't call them must-haves in theology. We call them presuppositions, kind of a big fancy $5 word that just means uh, non-negotiables. Um, we have presuppositions in the Christian faith that are sort of our starting points. And every faith system has these. Another way to think about presuppositions are these must-haves are sort of the things that if someone were to back you into the corner, and they would say, you know, your, your money or your presuppositions, you would give them your wallet. You would say, these I must hold on to as kind of the core beliefs of my faith system. And my hope in this series is that you would begin to know uh, without 
any doubt and complete clarity what the Christian must-haves are, and then be able to engage with these other worldviews and these other religions because they're going to come at it from very different uh, presuppositions. And the ground rules this week are the same as last week. In fact, if you were here last week, I, I tried to make this point that whenever we're talking to people of different faiths, we, we need to be truth and love. And if you remember that, that's kind of my way of remembering, I don't want to fall off these cliffs. I don't want to fall off one side of the cliff and just be deceived by other world religions. I want truth. And at the same time, I don't want to fall off the other side of the cliff and just be kind of a judgmental Christian. Nobody likes that. I, kind of a low bar for me. I, I, don't want to be, I, I don't want to be a jerk. I want to be truth in love in all conversations that we have with people. And I think especially when we come to the topic today, today what I want to do is I want to look at maybe the most interesting and challenging worldview at the same time, and that's uh, the faith of Islam. In fact, um, I find this being just more and more challenging in our world today. Uh, Christianity, you might know, is the largest religion in the world, 2.3 billion Christians worldwide, and Islam, whose followers are called Muslim, so I'll use those terms interchangeably throughout the message today, uh, is right behind it, 1.9 billion Muslims worldwide. Kind of the crazy thing is the religion is growing very fast. In fact, uh, twice the rate of Christianity. Um, this map will kind of show you about 23% of the world population uh, is Muslim. And as I said last week, you can sort of see some of the geographical uh, kind of affiliation with worldviews. And the Muslim faith primarily, as you would imagine, throughout the Middle East and Northern Africa, um, I love this map. You can see kind of way over on the right. You can see Indonesia. If you've been a part of our community for any length of time, you know that we have a, an incredible missionary, Susan Hoover, who's over in that region. She's been there for over 20 years uh, preaching the love of Jesus to, uh, to Muslims. And if you look at this map closely, um, one of my hesitations this week in sharing this is you might be focusing not on the dark area, but in kind of the lighter area of North America. And you might be thinking, well, come on, Pastor, why, why are we even bothering with this religion? It's like, you know, 1% of our population here in the United States. And as I mentioned last week, that when worldviews kind of have these opposite or extreme views and you put them close to each other, you have, you have the temperature for a collision. And I think none is truer with Christianity and Islam and Judaism. So what I want to do today is I want to take a look at the foundation of Islam. I want to give you uh, as much background about kind of their core beliefs and their founder and kind of how they operate. And then I want to kind of end the message today with, with trying to answer, I think, the most important question about Islam. And I think this question will relate to all the things you see going on uh, sort of in our current events today. So let's kind of dive in this morning and let's take a look at kind of the background of Islam, kind of its core foundation. Um, its founder is a man named Muhammad. And Muhammad, uh, born in 570 AD, so that kind of immediately tells you that Islam is not an old religion. It's been around for about 1,400 years, uh, came along about almost 600 years after Christianity. But Muhammad had what I would call a very tragic backstory. Uh, both of his parents died when he was very young. He was orphaned before the age of six. Uh, he was raised by his grandparents. And history would tell us that Muhammad was just very discontent with his spiritual life. And it 
sort of haunted him all the way uh, throughout his childhood and young adult. In fact, at the age of 40, he sort of has a kind of a crisis of faith. And in good spirit, goes into the desert of Arabia, and legend has it that he uh, kind of buried himself in a cave, and in the cave, he claims to have been visited by an angel. That's this image here, and the angel is Gabriel. Now, you're going to hear throughout this message a lot of things that sort of overlap with what you already know or have heard in the Bible, and that's because Islam um, traces its roots back through uh, the Old Testament to Abraham, and so you'll hear a lot of overlap. But this angel, Gabriel, visited Muhammad for, uh, for 12 years, from, 620, uh, from 610 to 622 AD, and gave him these visions, which Muhammad believed were instructions from Allah as to how to order the world. And he comprised all these visions into what's known today as the Quran. It's the holy book of Islam, and I'll say a few more words about that as well. But Muhammad then kind of goes on this journey, I guess you would call it today in our world, sort of like a journey of leadership. And he goes through kind of three very distinct phases of leadership. In fact, he starts out as a religious leader. He comes out of this cave, having received these visions, having compiled this, this teaching, this Quran, and he was a religious leader. And he starts sharing his message and gaining followers. However, again, this is going to sound very familiar to the life of Jesus, um, he gains in five years, he uh, gains 12 followers. So, you know, Christianity, Jesus calls um, his 12 disciples, and he does that kind of over a period of a few days and calls them out of their work environment, out of their secular jobs to come follow me. Muhammad does the same thing, but it takes him five years to get uh, 12 followers. And then his movement really picks up steam when he goes from a religious leader to a political leader. And this is kind of confusing, but you have to think of that map again and that area in Arabia um, is primarily a group of people that had all been conquered empires. So throughout that region, you have great empires that came and went. Um, the Assyrian Empire, Persian Empire, Egyptian Empire, Babylonian Empire, all of those conquered nations left behind a remnant of people. Each people group had their own religions and faiths. All of them were pagan, and all of them what we would call polytheists. So they believed in many different gods. Muhammad came along and said, Allah has sent me as the last and the greatest prophet to consolidate all of these world religions. And he starts bringing them together, and they find unity. And they've been brought together, in fact, um, kind of under this purpose. In fact, the symbol of Islam is this crescent moon and this star. You'll see this over every mosque, and it really borrows from that same period of time from the moon god, and the star is from Queen Ishtar, the um, sun god, all pagan gods, and he brings them together, and now in 632 AD, he kind of turns this political movement into a military movement. And now Muhammad doesn't have 12 followers, he's actually got 10,000 followers uh, as an army of warriors, and he begins to lead them on these military exploits, uh, promising them power and money and virgin women if they die and go to paradise. Uh, Muhammad, again, traces his roots back through the Bible. He, uh, is from, he claimed to be from the line of Ishmael, if you were here last week, I did kind of all the work of tracing kind of back to Genesis 16, uh, kind of how God promised through Abraham a nation, 
And Abraham's wife, Sarah, got very impatient because she couldn't have a child. And so she gave to Abraham her slave, Hagar. Abraham, with the slave woman, has Ishmael, um, who becomes this leader. God promises to bless Ishmael, and that becomes the Arab nation. God later also gives him a son through Sarah, and that son is Isaac. And there's this constant conflict throughout the scriptures between Ishmael's line and Isaac's line. And in fact, um, Muhammad kind of claimed that conflict. In fact, if you look in Genesis 16, verse 12, you see this verse. This is uh, in reference to Ishmael. It says, he will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. Muhammad kind of claimed this as his life verse. And as the conflict goes in the biblical story, if you read from Genesis 16 on, you would see this continuing conflict between Ishmael, the Arab nation, and Isaac, the Israelite nation, also Esau and Jacob, even through King Herod and the birth of Jesus. So what do Muslims believe? How does Islam compare to Christianity? This chart is very busy, but if you just kind of look at some top-level distinctions... When it comes to God in Islam, they refer to God as Allah. One of the things Muslims do is they have a very high view of God. Uh, they believe that God is completely other. And um, actually, because of that, God is, is impersonal and unknowable. That's kind of their high, high, high view of God. And that's why Islam literally means to submit. Muslims are those who have submitted their life to Allah. Again, Christianity, completely different view of God. We believe that God is, is a trinity, uh, a relationship between your heavenly Father who sent his son Jesus into the world to be perfect in life and then to die as the forgiveness of all of our sins and then to be resurrected from that death and to leave with us the Holy Spirit as our guide. This to Islam is considered complete blasphemy, this mingling of kind of the divine God, because again, they have such a high view of God, with, with humanity, the Son of God. I'll speak about more on that in just a moment. When it comes to Scripture, they have uh, the Quran. Um, it's their holy book. Uh, I've read the Quran. I uh, used to own a copy. I don't know what happened to it. I had it on my shelf in my office, and someone swiped it. So if you've seen my Quran, you can return it. Uh, it's, it's a very challenging read. Um, and I've read through it, and it does, again, overlap quite a bit with Christianity. You'll, you'll read stories about Abraham and Moses. Um, but again, Muslims believe that this teaching, their book, is primarily for uh, everyday life. So they have the five pillars of Islam that you're to follow as a Muslim. And these kind of set kind of your religious duties, things like taking a pilgrimage to Mecca once in your lifetime, giving alms to the poor, again, very good things, uh, as well as praying five times a day towards Mecca. Um, of course, we have the Bible, and we'll teach from it again here. Um, in their view, too, they do believe in Jesus. Uh, in Islam, they believe that Jesus was a prophet, and Jesus was a teacher, uh, but Muhammad was the greater prophet and the final, the final prophet and teacher sent by Allah. Their biggest issue, again, with all of Christianity and probably the biggest debates in conversation with Muslims would be their view of Jesus. They absolutely deny that Jesus was 
the Son of God and consider everything that we say about Jesus coming and living this perfect life and then dying and resurrecting as, as sort of just a hoax. In fact, I, I hesitate, but I wanted to show you one quote from the Quran to kind of just show you what they believe or how they deny this claim about Jesus, especially when it comes to the resurrection. They say these words. Again, this is from the Quran. It says, they, meaning Christians, said in boast, we killed Christ Jesus, the son of Mary, the messenger of Allah, but they killed him not, nor crucified him, but so it was made to appear to them. So again, this is where this collision of Christianity and Islam is so apparent. The core tenet of the Christian faith is that we believe that God sent his son, holy and perfect, to live a life for us that we could model our lives after. In fact, you're made in the image of God, in the image of Jesus. And we believe that Jesus had to come, that there was no other plan for salvation apart from Jesus Christ. And that's why he lived this perfect life and went to the cross as a payment for all of our sins, buried him in a tomb, but death could not defeat him. That's the Easter story. Jesus was resurrected to, con to conquer all of sin, all of our debt, and death and the devil himself. Again, this is where these two religions are completely opposed to one another. I, I could go on and on. In fact, I, I find these details to be very interesting, but I think, I think if my role here was to actually prepare you for conversations, um, conversations in truth and love that you could have in your neighborhood with Muslims or in your office with Muslims, I think I'd be doing you a disservice to just fill you with a lot of facts about Islam. Um, I think actually what's more important is to answer I think the pressing question for Islam, and I think this is the question that in conversations I have, I've had, I would not want to back away from. And it's a very difficult question to answer, and it's the question, um, is Islam a religion of peace? Now, I'll give the disclaimer here that I am not an uh, Islamic professor. I am a Christian pastor. I'm, I'm educated and trained in in the understanding and the beliefs of Christianity, but I have done my, my homework, and I've done an extensive amount prior to this series uh, in my education and upbringing on Islam, and can tell you that I would be very concerned about the answer that you hear in this category. And it's tricky. In fact, even this week, I, I went on just a number of different websites just trying to kind of, again, reacquaint myself with this conversation, and it's incredibly tricky because Many, many websites will tell you that Islam, oh yes, we are a religion of peace. And then you can find other websites from Muslims that will tell you, no, we are not a religion of peace. We are a religion of, of struggle and of exertion and jihad. And I can tell you that I cannot come up with another religion that has such a contrasting view among its followers um, inside of itself. In fact, let me try to make this a little bit clearer. Um, you could consider sort of the societal norm of Islam is maybe what you see here in the United States. Uh, you see a lot of um, Muslims that are very well known, and they're all incredibly peace-filled people. Dr. 
Dr. Oz, right? I mean, Dr. Mehmet Oz, pretty respected doctor in our world today. Uh, always quoted, always constantly kind of in the news. Um, just picked one, but you could have picked many different athletes uh, or celebrities, but none other than Laker great Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And you'll notice with Islam, one of the things that happens very often is the name that gets changed to be more uh, closely associated with Muhammad. So Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who was formerly Lou Al Cinder, um, or the musician, great musician from my childhood, Cat Stevens, uh, who converted to Islam, changed his name to Yusuf Islam. And I didn't know this, I was just reading this week, that uh, when he came to kind of this conversion to Islam, he, he found uh, Christianity and the West to be so repulsive to, uh, to Islam that he actually quit playing as a musician, sold all of his guitars, and kind of completely changed careers and went away from music. I understand he's recently come back uh, for different reasons, but you very often see these sort of like very devoted Muslims. And I'll use a word that was used often in sort of the, the reading I was doing this week. Uh, we would classify this group of Muslims as, as moderates. Um, but it would go kind of, it missed the conversation if we didn't also talk about what we see in the news all the time, represented by lots of radicals and extremists who also claim uh, to be Muslims. And this is a very long list of radicals or extremists or terrorist groups. And I went through each one of them to, again, try to just do my best to prepare uh, my heart and my words for you this morning. But if you look at just some of the common ones that you have, you've heard and seen in the news, if you take the Taliban, primarily in Pakistan, they uh, right on their website, say that they are Islamic. And all of these that I list will be kind of a particular type of Islam known as the Sunnis. I don't have time to get into all the differences, but they claim to be Islamic. You take Al-Qaeda, organized mostly in Afghanistan. That's Osama bin Laden's group, and they also are uh, Islamic. You take ISIS in Iraq or Hezbollah in Lebanon, or you take the one that's, frankly, in the news almost every other day, the the, the Houthis in Yemen, and I think I just saw in the news they, uh, they struck another British oil ship in um, the Red Sea area, and it was on fire last I saw, um, also claimed to be uh, Islam. Um, you take Hamas. I talked extensively about Hamas last week, uh, located in Palestine at war with Israel in the Gaza Strip, and on and on. Each one of these groups would not be considered moderates. These would be considered your radicals, and this group would operate under kind of what they would call the sixth pillar of Islam, known as jihad. And jihad, again, is this idea that there is struggle and exertion until the entire world submits to Allah. And the best way that I can sort of reconcile these two groups, the moderates, the celebrities, and the extremists, the radicals, is the way in which they interpret submission. These moderates, the celebrity Muslims, believe that the world will submit to Allah later, or even metaphorically. And so they're very peace-filled. While the radical groups believe that the world must submit to Allah now and by force if necessary. Now, I can just imagine, even in this room or 
as this goes out into uh, our live stream or out onto the internet, that there will be critics and there, there will be people that will very, you know, very truly say to me, well, pastor, I mean, you just, you're picking on Islam. I mean, hasn't Christianity done an awful lot of things that are horrible? And I would honestly have to admit, yes, Christians have done horrible things in the name of Jesus. We have the entire crusades and, and many, many other examples. In fact, if I could just offer maybe one last point of clarification between Islam and Christianity, I would say that uh, one of the things I learned in seminary is you can only follow the followers of a religion for so long. If you really want to know what a religion believes at its core, you have to look at the founder. So just kind of the last thought I would have is if you look at the founder, Muhammad, of Islam, and the founder of Christianity in Jesus, and you just look at just a couple of soundbite differences between them, between them, I think it's really clear. If you look at Muhammad, he, he led a military campaign, several military campaigns. Scholars are mixed. His groups killed somewhere between 1,000 and 3,000 people during his military campaigns. If you look at Jesus, on the other hand, zero kills. Jesus, in fact, the most peace-filled person. In fact, when one of Jesus' followers, if you remember the story in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter pulls out a sword swings and chops off the ear of the Roman guard. Not very good with a sword, mind you. He was aiming for his neck, only got the ear. But Jesus has to what? Has to rebuke his follower and then pick the ear up off the ground and heal this Roman soldier. Jesus, the, the ultimate at peacemaking. If you look at the idea of slavery, Muhammad had slaves and took people as property. Uh, Jesus came and preached a message of liberation, came to set the captives free. If you look at the idea of just relationships between the two, Muhammad had anywhere from 11, some scholars believe, 22 wives. Uh, his youngest wife was age nine. Jesus never married. There's nothing in history or in scriptures of anything Jesus ever did that was inappropriate uh, around women. Regardless of where you stand, I think there's an incredible difference between these two founders. And I think this leads to sort of um, back to these conversations that, that you would hopefully engage in, in truth and love. You, you now have some truth, and I want to give you kind of uh, back to these must-haves, these presuppositions. Um, if you were to engage in conversation, I would hope that these two things would be core to what you believe about Christianity. And the first presupposition, the first must-have, is to know that Jesus offers peace. And I got to tell you, in our world today, we, we need the message of Jesus because our world needs peace more than it's ever needed before. And the peace that Jesus offers is peace like no other. John 14, verse 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. The world gives struggle and violence. And if it's not physical violence, we certainly have in our day and age just the struggles of, uh, of people just being mentally struggling, the struggle of anxiety, the struggle of depression. And Jesus comes and offers peace, peace like no other to our world. And then finally, the last way in which Jesus comes and gives us this must-have, this incredible reality that God is intensely personal. And um, I'm taking questions throughout this series, and I got a great question this week from someone in our church because they kind of said to me, like, like, it seems like this message of Jesus is exclusive. 
like there's no other way to God. And I want to say very clearly that that is exactly what Jesus offers, an exclusive way to your heavenly Father. And this becomes so personal that God would do this, not for just a group of people, not for just people in the world, but for you personally. And you look at these words in John 17, 3. Now, this is eternal life. You want eternal life? You want life beyond this one? That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The pathway and the way to Jesus is personal. And he loves more than anything for you to bring him your burdens, to bring him your struggles, to talk to him about what's going on in your life. We call that prayer. And he wants to give you peace. And not because you're a good person, not because you followed some five spiritual pillars or because you were really good or really moral person. In fact, Christianity says just the opposite. You're not moral. You're not good enough. In fact, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If you want morality, you can go to any other world religion. But if you want grace, if you want forgiveness, if you want mercy, then come to Jesus. If you would bow your heads and pray with me, please. Father God, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for the only way that it comes, which is through your son, Jesus Christ. And our hope and our plea is that the world would know Jesus, starting right here, starting in our own town, starting right in our own home. God, I pray that you would bring your kingdom down into this world, that we would see your kingdom come, that your will would be done on this earth as it is in heaven. God, until your entire world knows, we want to be sold out to giving you all the glory and all the honor. We thank you for the clarity and the beauty of the message that you've given us. We love you and we praise you. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast today. Check out our app or website at bridgewaycommunity.org for more messages or to take the sermon one step deeper by downloading the Sermon Discussion Guide.